correct all their mistaken ideas about that and to know that we must all come to the foot of the cross confessing our sin and if we do so we are welcome we are accepted whoever we are whatever background however far we've gone from you and so lord we pray that this good news of jesus may sound out in this community and in all the communities of our land and indeed throughout the world we ask all of these things in jesus name and for his sake amen now we sing again to God's praise, Psalm 40, singing verses 1 to 5 to God's praise. Jesus at the end of the parable 
of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Especially that second half of the verse. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Pride today is almost universally regarded as a good thing. We hear about gay pride, or black pride, or even white pride. Pride in our country, pride in our team, pride in our family. And we can see how pride can have a good sense. Admiration for or loyalty to someone or something. We see this in the New Testament. Writing to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul says, I take great pride in you. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4. It's a word that means to glory in someone or something. But the same word can be used in the sense of proud boasting. Earlier he said to the same church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, your boasting is not good. Same word that is used, but with a different intonation. And this alerts us to the fact that pride has a dark underbelly. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, we have the famous proverb, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. John Calvin, who was writing in the 1500s, said, The whole human race is infected with the disease of pride. Now, in case we think that that's just the view of an ancient reformer, one of the greatest songwriters of the 20th and 21st centuries actually agrees with that. He says, there's a whole lot of people in trouble tonight from the disease of conceit. A whole lot of people seeing double tonight from the disease of conceit. Give you delusions of grandeur and an evil eye. Give you the idea that you're too good to die. Then they bury you from your head to your feet from the disease of conceit. These are the words of Bob Dylan in one of his songs writing in 1989. Now maybe you agree that pride is a huge problem in the world. But of course, you're not proud yourself. None of us would like to admit that we're proud. C.S. Lewis has a little test for you. He says, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? And I think when we do that, then we'll find out how proud we really are. Do you know that a revolution took place with regard to attitudes to pride in the first few centuries AD? For four centuries or so before that, in Greek thought, pride was a good thing, much like today. The Greek philosopher Aristotle believed that the great-souled man had a profound regard for his own excellence. To underestimate it would have stamped him as mean-spirited. So such pride was praised and humility was despised. 
The soul was viewed as good and the body bad. Therefore, one could take pride in the intellect overcoming the passions of the body. And in the same way, the noble people in society could take pride in dominating the common people. Because remember that although we often think democracy started in Greece, democracy wasn't for everyone. It was for very few people. It wasn't for slaves and other people like that. So this exaltation of pride and the despising of humility was turned on its head by the gospel. These words of Jesus. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That revolution started there in the words of Jesus, and it went on to influence the Western world. However, there was an exception to the general Greek praise of pride, and that was in another word that was used in Greek, the word that we still use today or has become popular again today, the word hubris. And that is described as the attitude of overweening arrogance to God and to man. The Scottish theologian Willie Barclay, and I wouldn't agree, of course, with everything that Willie Barclay said, but he has a tremendous book called New Testament Words. And in it, he says of this word, hubris is mingled pride and cruelty. Hubris is the pride which makes makes a man defy God and the arrogant contempt which makes him trample on the hearts of his fellow men. It's interesting that we have now adopted this word hubris for this dark underbelly of pride. And this is precisely what the New Testament is getting at as it condemns pride. In fact, various forms of the word hubris uh, are used in the New Testament. In Luke chapter uh, 18 here, verse 32, Jesus, in speaking of himself, says, himself as the Son of Man, he says, he will be turned over to the Gentiles, they will mock him, insult him, and that literally means to treat him with hubris, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 13 says, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. And that expression violent man means hubristic man, this proud attitude towards his fellow men. So all of this tells us the real danger of pride. Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, Baptist preacher in London in the Victorian age, said, don't be proud of race, face, place, or grace. A very memorable way of putting the various ways in which we so often go wrong about pride. Don't be proud of race, face, place, or grace. But of course, these are the very things that we tend to be proud of and can cause such havoc in the world and indeed in the church as well. So let's look at what we can learn about pride from our text and from this whole passage. Our text says that pride brings you down and humility lifts you up. And we see this at work in the various scenes and encounters described by Luke in this section. And in each aspect of pride that we see here, 
basically it's pride in someone's own identity they have found their identity in something and that's what they're proud of and that's what keeps them from drawing near to the Lord Jesus the first is pride in religion in verses 11 and 12 the Pharisee and the tax collector here were two men the Pharisee was a very religious person he was religiously orthodox he was morally strict perhaps a kind of popular view of a free church minister nowadays but unlike the latter he was highly respected in his society the Pharisee by contrast the tax collector although he was rich through money lending and extortion and so on he was a collaborator with the Romans he was a kind of combination of loan shark and a traitor to his nation he was despised and hated so a very different character from the Pharisee so how did they approach God as Jesus presents them in this parable the Pharisee it could be translated he prays about himself or even he prays to himself and his whole prayer is full of me 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 it's all about him he exalts himself he boasts of all the things that he does and he believes that on the basis of that he should be accepted by God and as part of that he looks down on other people he has this holier-than-thou attitude even comparing himself favorably to this tax collector who has come into the temple he is better than others and he's boasting about all his religious achievements this is his identity this is what he sees of himself as a person and he's proud of this and Jesus says this is the very thing that keeps him from really coming to God C.S. Lewis again says a proud man is always looking down on things and people and of course as long as you are looking down you cannot see something that is above you as long as you are proud you cannot know God and notice also that this Pharisee is giving the impression of being humble because he says I thank you God it's as if he's, he's saying you know I'm paying lip service to the fact that I'm so great because you've, you've helped me kind of thing and C.S. Lewis again says a man is never so proud as when striking a humble attitude and that can often be the case isn't it and we see it in this man here but Jesus said this man who to all intents and purposes to the world at that time to other people at that time seemed the very epitome of what a religious person would be what a good man would be Jesus said this man was not justified before God because he says of the tax collector that he the tax collector went down to his home justified and not the other so this is the perfect illustration and we'll think obviously about the tax collector but this is a perfect illustration of the fact that we are justified not by works but by grace we're justified not by being proud of ourselves and our own achievements but we're justified by coming humbly to God recognizing 
our faults and our sin. So what about the tax collector then? His whole attitude speaks humility, not pride. First of all, there's a distance. He stands far off at a distance. He's self-effacing. He's not pushing himself forward like the Pharisee is. He's downcast. His face is downcast. This speaks of shame. He's ashamed of what he's done and what he is. And then he's distressed. He shows sorrow and grief. He beats his breast. That was a sign of such sorrow and grief in those days. So he's at a distance. He's self-effacing. He's downcast. He feels shame. He's distressed. He feels the sorrow and grief because of sin. Because, you see, he knew that his life was indefensible. He realized his guilt. He realized his sinful nature. He calls himself the sinner, literally. The sinner. As if he wasn't thinking about anybody else. In comparison to the Pharisee, he was comparing himself so favorably to this tax collector. But this tax collector could only think about the fact that he was the sinner. If there was no one else in the world who was a sinner, he was the sinner. That's how much he realized his true condition. And he knew he only had one hope. And that was not his own achievements, his own works. It was the mercy of God. God be merciful to me, a sinner. He knew that it was only through the free forgiveness of God that he would be accepted. That God would not deal with him as he deserved. Now, the word that he uses there for mercy is very interesting because it implies the need for God's wrath to be placated. It's a word that's used elsewhere in the New Testament about the work of the Lord Jesus. Propitiation for sin, that's what Jesus did. Turning aside the rightful anger of God against our sin by his death on the cross. This is the word that this man is using here. He knows that he deserves the right anger of God against his sin. But he's asking that that's, that anger be turned aside. Now he doesn't yet know the full implication of how that's going to be carried out. But the full answer is in the death of Christ that Jesus himself refers to later in this very chapter. That he would be despised and rejected. And he would bear the sins of many. Jesus said that this man and not the other went down to his home justified. He was right with God, declared not guilty and accounted righteous. So what we're being told here in this parable is that pride brings you down. The Pharisee thought himself high up, right up there. And other people no doubt thought he was right up there. But Jesus said he was brought right down in God's estimation. Whereas the tax collector who humbled himself before God, who seemed in the eyes of so many others to be the lowest of the low, and he now thought of himself in that regard, yet he was exalted. Why was he exalted? Because he came to God in the way in which God has appointed that we should come. Honestly recognizing our sin confessing our sin and humbly asking for that forgiveness that's made full and free in Jesus. Tonight, my friend, if you don't know that great grace of God, 
that mercy that this tax collector speaks of, you can know it tonight through the invitation of the Lord Jesus to come and to trust in him, to ask forgiveness for all your sin, and to know the mercy of God that puts you right with him, not just for a moment, but forever. So that's the first thing, pride in religion. And you know, throughout the world today, religion generally is thought of as this thing about us doing good works or performing certain rituals or whatever it is that will put us in the right frame of mind with God. That is not Christianity. It's not the gospel. The gospel is about humility, humbly coming, recognizing that nothing we can do can save us. But Jesus has done it all. And we know the mercy of God through him. But the second area we see pride in here in this passage is pride in intellect. Verses 15 to 17, where the disciples try to prevent these little children being brought to Jesus. Because they seem to think that these children were unimportant to Jesus. They were too young. Their intellect was not developed enough to appreciate Jesus. They thought Jesus was only interested in grown-up people and people who could be influential in some way. And of course, there's tremendous pride and in intellect today, similar to the Greek-Roman world. The idea that our intellect through science and through politics and economics and so on will solve every problem that comes up, that we can control everything. And then along comes this tiny invisible virus and throws the whole world into chaos and shows the utter foolishness of all the wisdom of this world. And then along comes a dictator, Putin, and again throws the world into chaos because of his, his invasion of Ukraine. Things utterly out of our control and our wisdom again is seen to be so foolish. I'm reminded again of Dylan's words about the comedian Lenny Bruce who said he showed the wise men of his day to be nothing more than fools. And that's reflecting exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Have we, lessened, have we learned the lesson of humility? I don't think so, so often. In comparison with that attitude of the disciples, there were the children. They had no achievements. They had little ability, limited intellectual capacity, no pride. But they could come when Jesus called. Jesus called them to him, and they came. And Jesus said that was what really mattered. That unless we became like little children, we could not enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is calling you tonight. If you've never responded before, he's calling you, just like he was calling those little children. So we must turn from our pride and the idea that we know and understand everything. And we must come to the one who really does know and understand everything, the Lord Jesus Christ. We must come as little children to him. So again, we see that pride brings you down, but humility lifts you up. The disciples were rebuked 
But the little children were called to Jesus. They were exalted. John Calvin again said, Humility is the beginning of true intelligence. And that's reflecting what's said in Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Another area we see in this passage where pride uh, comes in is in the rich young ruler. And there's two aspects with him. And the first is pride in morality. The rich young ruler comes and he thought he could get everlasting life by doing something great. He said, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And when Jesus suggests, well, what about the commandments? He thought he had kept God's law. And he seemed to have a, take a pride in the fact that he had kept all these things from his youth. And this again seems to be bound up with his identity. This is who he was. This is what he placed his hope in. And he wondered what other good thing he would have to do to add to this to be right with God. He seemed to be puzzled. Why didn't he feel that he had eternal life? And that tells us that pride in our own goodness does not satisfy. Because whenever can you be satisfied that you have done enough to please God. And again, we speak here about all the different aspects of religion in the world. And it's a constant treadmill of trying always to ingratiate yourself with God. Always trying somehow to impress Him by what you do. And it ends in abject failure. Jesus here shows what He was missing. And it's very interesting Sometimes we see things that are shown by what is not said. And what Jesus does not say here, first of all, is he does not quote the whole law of God. He doesn't quote the commandment, one commandment relating to our neighbor, that is the commandment not to covet. And you see, that was a commandment that was neglected very much at this time, because it didn't deal with any outward behavior. Your covetousness is not necessarily shown in your words or your action. It's in your mind. It's in your heart. You desire what belongs to someone else. You desire what you don't have. Or part of it, like we see with this man, he desired to have more and more of his own wealth. But also, Jesus omits the first four commandments relating to our duty to God. And this is again bringing home to this young man that he could say, perhaps in some way or other, that outwardly he had kept these commandments that he interpreted in terms of actions. He hadn't actually murdered anybody or whatever. But Jesus is highlighting the fact that there is another greater obligation, and that is our love towards God. As he summarized elsewhere, the two great commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Because you see, something else was on the throne of this man's life. Not God, but pride in his own achievements. And Jesus here asks him to show his love to others 
by taking all his wealth and giving to the poor, and to show love to God by following Jesus. Because that's really the crunch, isn't it, of all of this? Giving his wealth away, that was part of it. But to give up everything and to follow Jesus, that's really what Jesus was wanting him to do. But he was sad. And he went away sad. Why? Because of his great wealth. And because of his pride in his keeping of God's commandments and the fact he didn't want to change his identity as to who he was. So again here we see that pride brings you down. He went away miserable. Humility would have lifted him up. And again, we can see that perhaps pride in morality is something that many, many people have. They think that they've done all the right things. Why shouldn't God accept them? But it's because of this very pride in our own achievements that keeps us from seeing our need of what God has done for us in Christ. But the second aspect with the rich young ruler is, of course, his pride in his wealth. This is what was really stopping him. Because there's no mention in anything that he did of putting God first. His God was really his wealth. And that was tied up with his identity. That's who he was. And also these things were for his own use. He didn't use these things to give to the poor. And that's why Jesus was bringing this home to him. So pride and wealth are inextricably uh, intertwined in our society still today. The ambition to advance ourselves to be better off than others so that we can look down on others. Again, to quote Bob Dylan, he's got a song called Foot of Pride. You know what they say about be, being nice to the right people on the way up. Sooner or later you're going to meet them coming down. Well, there ain't no going back when your foot of pride come down. And that's quoting from Psalm 36, verse 11. Let not the foot of pride come upon me. Jesus said to this man, he had to give it all up. He had to let it all go. He had to recognize not his wealth as his God, but he had to recognize Jesus as his God and to follow him. Again, we see pride brings us down and humility lifts us up. If this man had come humbly to obey what Jesus said, he would be exalted. And again, whatever it is that you may be held back by today, pride in this or that aspect of your life, what you see as your real identity, whatever it is, it's so poor in comparison to knowing Jesus, the great Prince of Glory who has come into this world to save us miserable sinners who have rebelled against him, who have spoiled his world, hurt ourselves and harmed others. What an amazing gift. And yet in our pride so often we turn away. And then finally, there's the possibility of pride in our poverty or our need or our victimhood. I'm really turning on its head the last section of this chapter because here we meet this blind beggar who by Mark is called Bartimaeus. And I'm thinking about how he might have reacted. 
because you see there's a temptation to have a kind of inverted snobbery he could have had a pride in his own poverty and in his own need because this had become his identity this is who he was as a beggar and perhaps he could have the attitude of demanding his rights as a victim that God must help me and if he doesn't help me there's something wrong with God again that's the attitude that many people have today by comparison what was his actual attitude well again it was humility we see this humility in his persistence he cried out Jesus son of David have mercy on me and people tried to stop him and shut him up but he wouldn't be stopped he would keep on going it didn't matter what people thought of him it didn't matter what people said he would persist and then again we see his humility in his appeal to God's mercy now this word mercy is a different word from that used in the parable of the tax collector this word means compassion and pity he saw himself as pitiable he saw himself as miserable and he was appealing to the compassion and loving kindness and grace of Jesus and we see his humility too in that he had faith in Jesus he called him the son of David he recognized him as Messiah and he was coming trusting in Jesus that he would be able to heal him and restore his sight to him John Calvin again says nothing but the pure knowledge of God can teach us humility and it's because this man understood who Jesus was and he trusted in him that he was coming in that humble fashion the greatest example of course of humility is Jesus himself in John chapter uh, sorry in Mark chapter 10 verse 45 Jesus says the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many now often we think of that verse with those great words at the end the great redemption that Jesus has come to achieve giving his life as a ransom to pay the price of freedom for those who are enslaved by sin but notice it is part of a whole discussion really about humility because the disciples were arguing among themselves as to who was the greatest and he, Jesus was saying basically the greatest is the one who will serve because he himself didn't come to be served but to serve if anyone was entitled to stand on his dignity it was Jesus but he didn't he even took a towel and washed his disciples feet I'm reminded of the words of Winston Churchill who said I know of no case where a man added to his dignity by standing on it and in, in Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 8 the Apostle Paul speaks of the same thing when he speaks of Jesus he says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant 
being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus gave himself to save us, to pay that ransom price. But he also gave himself as an example to us as to how to live once we are saved. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. You should have the same mind as Christ Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus speaks of this, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we see in so many different ways, pride brings us down, but humility lifts us up. If anyone could have had pride in himself, it was Jesus. The perfect Son of God who perfectly achieved all that his Father sent him into the world to do. But he was the most humble. And he was the one who has been highly exalted to the right hand of the Father. If we are truly humble, we will see our identity merely as a sinner saved by grace. Like the Apostle Paul, he called himself the chief of sinners. He thought himself as the one whom Jesus loved and gave himself for him. So what about you tonight? You may be very re religious. You may have attended this church or other churches for years. You may have given to charity. But you don't have eternal life. Why not? What's holding you back? Is it pride? You may be very intellectual. You may think that your scientific or philosophical or political or economic wisdom should give you all the answers. But you're not justified. You don't have eternal life. Why not? Is it pride? You need to bow the knee before the Savior. You may be very moral. You may have always been a good person. You may have concern about the world. You may have concern about the environment and everything. But you're not justified. You don't have eternal life. Why not? Is it pride? You may be very well off. You may be successful. You may have the status that goes with all of that. But you're not justified. You don't have eternal life. Your money can't buy your way into heaven. What's holding you back? Is it pride? You may be poor or even homeless. You may be ill. You may be a victim of some kind or another. And so many people are victims in the world. But that doesn't justify you or give you eternal life. What's holding you back? Is it pride? Not even your need makes you deserve eternal life. Only God's mercy in Christ can give you that. We're going to sing in a moment these words. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt 
on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, convict us of sin, convict us of pride, convict us of that shameful conceit that we have in ourselves and our own achievements. Grant us that 